One of the things that has been recently mentioned in our recordings and in teachings concerning the end of the age is how for the most part the evangelical and historic, meaning Roman Catholic, um, messages about the end of the age stop at going to heaven. So when you die, you go to heaven. And although that's true, that's not, that's not where the message comes to a stop. Too many things would be unresolved if going to heaven were the end of the matter. Leave aside the fact that the scriptures speak very specifically about the return of the Lord and bringing with Him those who have died in Christ and with that the resurrection of the dead, the changing of bodies from our normal or our familiar earthly corruptible forms to a form that is incorruptible and are being caught up in the clouds. The ones who are changed in an instant twinkling of an eye are caught up to the clouds together with those who are resurrected. We're not, the bodies, the bodies do not go to heaven. The spirit and the soul go to heaven. But the bodies are resurrected out of the dust of the earth or changed in an instant in the twinkling of an eye, they're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's exactly what it says. So the whole notion of being raptured is nonsense because it presumes people being caught up suddenly into heaven for some reported period of seven years at the time of the rapture. But you know, the, the, the messages on the end of the age are very, very fuzzy. Most preachers, most religious groups do not venture into this area and yet so much of what the Lord Himself said prophetically is about exactly that. What happens as the age concludes? In addition to that, entire sections of scripture, of prophetic scripture, are devoted to the fully forming and functioning of the opposition to Christ and to the saints. Beginning with the earliest of of definitions or uh, earliest of references in the book of Genesis, the third chapter, that speaks of the the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent while the serpent bruises his heel. But everyone seems to be satisfied that the fullness of that revelation occurred when Jesus died on the cross and Satan ostensibly um, bruised his heel but with his resurrection he crushed his head. Well if that were so, then there would be an end to the works of the devil and he would not 
if, if the crushing of his head, which I think by every definition would be that he was annihilated, then why are we still dealing with him after Jesus was raised from the dead? These are questions that are simply avoided. No, indeed Jesus dealt a, a, a crushing blow to Satan and, and uh, it was said that one of the heads was wounded but it had been healed. That's why we keep dealing with him because the final blow has not been delivered and will not be delivered until the Lord Jesus coming from with the clouds of heaven destroys the works of Satan before he destroys Satan. He destroys the works of Satan when he returns with the armies of heaven. And among the things that happen when he returns is he imprisons Satan, Satan himself. He destroys the beast who is not Satan. Satan gives his power, his throne and great authority to the beast because it does his work and this beast is a kingdom as we have talked about throughout the the length of these discourses on the book of Revelation. So this fourth kingdom spoken of in Daniel 7, a kingdom of ten horns. Let me correct something I said. I said that the first reference to this beast in the book of Daniel, Daniel 7, was that it had seven heads. Uh, No, the first reference in Daniel was that it had ten horns. It's revelation that adds the component that these ten horns are found on seven heads. Now, the point being that the works of Satan are collected up in a kingdom that opposes and crushes and devours all of, all of mankind with the exception of the saints with whom he wages war. Now the saints represent the kingdom of heaven on the earth and of course the kingdom of heaven has been on the earth since the day of Pentecost. Now I understand that certain religious groups teach that the kingdom of heaven is heaven itself, that's nonsense that is simply unbiblical. Now it works if if you're charging entrance to the kingdom of heaven uh, in the form of indulgences, that works for you but it's not accurate. Jesus has been Lord and King of His kingdom which is called the kingdom of heaven forever and there has been an appearing of His kingdom 2,000 years ago on the day beginning with the day of Pentecost and of the increase of His kingdom and rule according to Isaiah, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon His shoulders, name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace and of the increase of His kingdom and rule 
or dominion and power, there shall be no end. So once it steps into place in the earth, functionally in the earth as it is in heaven, then there is an increase of that kingdom. And finally, all kingdoms, including the one typified in Daniel with the ten horns, all kingdoms are made subject to the rule of Christ. So the events that culminate the age have all of that to look forward to. In addition to that, in addition to the destruction of the works of the devil, to include this kingdom that is the compendium of his power and the projection of his power, including that and the coalition between that kingdom and its kings and the harlot, the prostitute who pretends that she is the bride but is not. Bluntly put, this woman who gave birth to the Son, in, again in, in, in reference to the book of Revelation, who is given favor by God in the form of a place prepared in the wilderness, becomes a harlot because she's approached the pursuit, the devil pursues him, or pursues her rather, in the wilderness. So the woman is not left alone in the wilderness, she's pursued by the devil. Now, how does that turn out? What does the devil offer to anyone that it does not control? What did he offer to Jesus? He offered to him the kingdoms of the world. So long as she submits, so long as he submitted to him. This is the same offering he offered to the woman in the wilderness and she took it and has been, in a sense, a queen, harlot queen for the longest while, for 2,000 years mostly, and has done the bidding of empires since that time. Where do we think we got the idea of a state church from? And what exactly is the purpose of a state church? Who ends up being the dominant as between the state and the church whenever you have a state church? The state, of course. The state is. Because the state offers its power in support of the church, of the mandates of the church. There's perhaps one time when the church exercised power over the state and that was during the period of the Crusades where the papacy could send armies, the armies of Europe into the Middle East. But consistently the kings hate the dominion of the harlot because she is so selfish, she's so self-consumed, so self-absorbed that she makes the nations captive to her wiles and she makes kings captives to her wiles. 
So at the end of the age, she has to be judged. If we're just taken out of here, and it's not clear to me exactly why uh, the, the proponents of the rapture think that we should be taken out of here. Because if the assumption is that this beast so terrifying, crushing and devouring the whole earth, succeeds against the saints and crushes and devour the saints, then Satan has won on the earth. Now he will oppose the saints, will crush and devour mankind, but God will provide for the saints. So he doesn't, he doesn't have dominion over the saints. And indeed, Daniel tells us that judgment is set, thrones are in place, judgment is set, and the beast is judged and destroyed because judgment is given in favor of the church, of of the saints. When I use the word church, I mean the saints. I mean the body of Christ. I don't mean any institution because for the most part, they have entirely folded into what is described as the harlot in Scripture. All of this has to come to an end. An economic system that flourished in support of both the the mandates of kings and aided the, 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 the harlot to such an extent that she sits, as it were, on a mountain of gold, gold and silver and jewelry and the, 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 the fee for her harlotry. All of that has to be brought to an end. Other things that have to be brought to an end or that needed to, need to be initiated, the armies of heaven need to be gathered. The marriage supper of the Lamb needs to be, needs to be undertaken. The coming forth of Christ to finish His rule. You remember, according to the 70 prophetic weeks of Daniel, He was cut off in the middle of the week. He didn't finish, or at least He was not at the time vindicated upon the earth except for the resurrection of the dead, except for His own resurrection, Uh, but all of that remains to be finished. In what capacity is He King of kings and Lord of lords if Russia can invade the Ukraine, if, if nations are at war with nations? Who is the arbiter of peace? In what capacity is He the Prince of Peace? Is his influence simply regulated to or relegated by or to um, uh, the church? And does that somehow justify the harlot as having an influence upon, uh, upon the nations of the earth? No, he's king, he's lord. His rule is that of an absolute ruler ruling with a rod of iron. So we have certain witless characters who have read that 
Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and have moved to try to configure a way to let him be that by their own efforts of course. They talk about the seven mountains and invading the systems of the cosmos and to the end of establishing the rule of Christ over the systems of the cosmos. A more ridiculous idea could hardly be fathomed. Mankind giving Jesus the opportunity to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords, the church somehow providing him with a platform for rule, how utterly ridiculous. I can't even begin to fashion the expressions to describe the folly and and, um, mind-numbing silliness of this posture. It's why it's so easily corrupted by an, an association with political leaders. They don't have an alternative, they can't bring it to pass. Do you see the present church having any platform at all with which to bring about the rule of Christ on the earth except to go to the political arena? It's why they have to. If we make Jesus king, then his his kingdom is not a kingdom, it's a democracy. He is the product of the efforts of his people. His kingship, his lordship is the product of the efforts of the church. No, no, no. That's I'm offended by such notions because in terms of basic jurisprudence, they represent a stunning ignorance of the source of the authority to govern. God appointed him king. It was the living God, the eternal Father, the one who created the heavens and the earth and not the consent of the governed or the efforts of the saved that makes him King of kings and Lord of lords. He said said it this way, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the second psalm leaves no doubt as to who gave it to him. God addressing the kings spoke to that very fact and said, kiss the son lest he be angry at you and you perish in the way. Concerning the Son, he said, Your throne, O God. God the Father said to God the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Because you have loved righteousness and you hate wickedness, God says to him, I will set you above your fellows and I will anoint you with the oil of joy." This is from the book of Hebrews, quoting the Old Testament prophecies of the Psalms. So no, Jesus is king because God appointed him king, not some farcical notion of invading seven systems to the end that we we exalt Jesus as king. It's nonsense. These are the systems of the cosmos. Their corruption is from their beginning, ab initio. You're not going to 
take an unholy thing and make it holy. Because in the nature of the unholy thing is its own government. We on the other hand are the kingdom of heaven and we have our own systems that at the base of these systems recognizes the lordship of Christ that God has established. And we are meant to function as an alternative to show the world how it is to be done. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. And the one who maintains it all in the face of these systemic oppositions that the world has created as systems of the cosmos, one who maintains it all is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he doesn't need and cannot depend on our faithfulness and our accomplishments as a support of his power and his authority. No, I mean, the people who make this stuff up are ignorant of kingdoms, kings, and their purposes. So they, they throw together things. These are not scholars of the scriptures, these are not people educated in the word, these are promoters who see the opportunity to deceive people to their own substantial personal gain and personal fame. But such things are prophesied as would happen in the last days. Now then, all these things need to be wrapped up. The bride needs to be made ready. The wedding supper of the Lamb needs to take place. The armies of heaven need to come forth and those armies include humans and attending angels. The Lord will be revealed uh, with a shout of the archangel, the trump of God, and He'll come attended by or with, the, with His mighty angels, as the scriptures say in Matthew 24, and so on. So what I want to do in this section is to finish talking about what is the result how does humanity look at the time of the coming of the Lord and at the time of the wrapping up of all these things? And I have, as I've said before, humanity will come to such a place of degradation and of, of uh, such, so hollowed out by these, these three things that we mentioned before, by the terror of the beast who crushes, devours anything that opposes, number one. Number two, by an absolute reliance for survival on the economy created and maintained by the beast for the purpose of control. And number three, by the deception of the harlot who talks people into submitting to the hegemony of the beast and offers in the carrot and stick fashion, offers the proposal of human survival in exchange for a mindset 
a mindset that acknowledges the lordship of Satan as projected through the beast on the earth. Now, over time and with the substantial support of the invisible element, those three things, and the fourth, the invisible element of the demonic pouring out of the abyss and taking positions of power and leadership, but yet in, in, in an invisible form, dominating human thinking, changing human culture, making the unthinkable thinkable, making the aberrant normal, all those things together lead to a condition of humanity upon the earth prior to the return of the Lord in which what the Lord does is He sends forth angels to seal the elect, to put the stamp of God on the elect. When that happens, it's the end of the time of salvation by grace through faith. All of the rest are bound over for the destruction of the flesh and most will perish, or at least two-thirds will perish during the events that have to do with the wrath of God, the vials of the wrath of God being poured out, all those things we talked about. And then the rest will be subject to the carnage of God's wrath when He comes forth with His mighty army. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the captain of the host, will lead the armies into this battle. Here is the condition of mankind then at that time. Now brethren, this is from 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 19, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, let no one deceive you by any means, for the day will not come unless the great falling away occurs first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will be taken out of the way. Then the coming of the lawless one, according to the working of Satan, with all powers, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteousness, unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved, and for this reason God sends them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness." So mankind will be so given over to lawlessness and to believing a lie in the place of truth that the deceiver will find his way fully prepared. When we come back, I'd like to delve just a little bit more into the condition of mankind so that we understand why it is necessary for God to seal the elect, to seal the righteous in that day and time. 
and why it's the end of both the time, the end of the time of the Gentiles and what, what Jews will be saved at that time will be, will be brought in by the extreme pressures upon Israel at the time and only a remnant of those will be sealed along with the elect, hence the term 140 and 4,000 who will be sealed from among the Jews. Now then, once the sealing has occurred, the rest are bound over for destruction. The ones who survive, the process will continue in the millennium, in the period that occurs after that and I hope to in this series on the book of Revelation get to a discussion of the purposes of the millennium. I I want to talk when we come back and, and in subsequent messages, I want to talk about all the events that are necessary and that have to be concluded as the age concludes. The idea of us just going, leaving, going to heaven and all this is left unfinished is nonsense. No, we won't be taken out. The only taken out is at the time of the return of the Lord when our bodies are changed and we together with the righteous dead who have been resurrected will join the Lord in the clouds where we meet Him in the air to come back with Him to finish up these events and to establish the rule of divine righteousness in the new earth under the sovereign rule of Christ where everything will be renewed according to the original intentions of God. I'm Sam Solon and we will continue to to dissect and, and unpack this matter. I'll see you then. Bye now.